This is Jane Mulcahy and I'm reporting for Law and Justice. I'm joined via Skype with Professor Fiona DeLondres from Birmingham University. Uh, Fiona, thanks so much for taking this call. Fiona, you and your colleague Mairead Enright, who's also at Birmingham University, wrote a book recently called Repealing the Eighth, Reforming Irish Abortion Law. It was just published there in 2018. Can you tell me what prompted you guys to write this book? The first thing that prompted us to write it was a sense that one of the concerns that people might have around the prospect of repeating the eighth is a sense of uncertainty about the future. A sense that, you know, there would, if we got rid of this provision from the Constitution, there might be this vast vista where we don't know what the law is going to look like or how it might operate and that there's nothing out there to guide us or help us with that. So as two people who've worked in the area of reproductive justice and the laws relating to reproduction for a number of years, we knew that there is plenty of guidance of good practice and less good practice out there in other jurisdictions, in international human rights law, in international medical best practice, that actually we could bring together and present to people to help people who are interested to reimagine actually what reproductive life might look like as a legally regulated thing in Ireland after the Eighth Amendment. So really we wrote the book in order to present this vision of what the law could look like, in order to say Yes, some things will be difficult to resolve, but there are resolutions there. There are solutions. There are ideas. We don't have to build this empire from nothing. There are lots of things that we can draw on to figure out what might work and what might not work. And so to try to allay some of that fear um, and to show as well, you know, the really urgent importance from a constitutional perspective, from a political perspective, and from a real-life perspective mm-hmm. of repealing the Eighth Amendment and reimagining the law relating to pregnancy in Ireland. So is the book, Fiona, very much aimed then at the lawmakers and policymakers and perhaps medical professionals? Or did you envisage that it would have a wider readership? Could anyone off the street understand this book? We think so. So we hope it does have a wide appeal and a wide reach. When we wrote it, we had in mind you know, the interested, engaged reader who's not a specialist in law and not a specialist in medicine, but who, you know, has a relatively good grasp of how the law might operate and who is interested in getting into the topic. So it's not, we think it's not inaccessible, it's not technical, it is scholarly. And Mm -hmm. if anybody wants you know, references around things. There are plenty of footnotes in there. Yeah. But actually, you don't even have to engage with them because the, the narrative, we're, we're trying to tell a story really that should appeal to people across a wide spectrum from your politicians and policymakers, as you say, to your interested person um, on the street. Part of that, of trying to reach that audience, was getting it into bookstores, not specialist bookstores, everyday bookstores. Mm-hmm. And also we have made it available for free online. Fantastic. The University of Birmingham paid a license fee to ensure that anybody can read it for free online. If someone just Googles Enright Delandres repeating the eight, it should take them to the website, which will take 
open access version. So you and Mairead, your co-author, are both human rights scholars. Did you draw very heavily on the human rights discourse in this area? Yes, so we did draw on international human rights law in two ways. One was to talk about how the constitution might be developed after repeal. Because since 1983, all personal rights let's say, of pregnant people have really been funneled through the Eighth Amendment. And so we wanted to talk about what a rights-based approach to the right to bodily integrity or the right to privacy might look like after the Eighth Amendment. And we leaned on human rights law for that. And then we also leaned on international human rights law to think about different elements of legislation that might be introduced after repeal. So things like how could you make a law that actually would maximise the protection of the rights of pregnant people while still giving effect to the state's interest, legitimate interest, in trying to support pregnancy and preserve fetal life. So we drew an international human rights law in both of those ways. Do you think it was significant there recently that the Supreme Court came back with the unanimous decision that all the rights of the unborn are, are contained currently within the Eighth Amendment and that there are no other lingering rights? I think it was very significant. I mean, one of the your listeners will probably know one of the concerns, and it's a concern that I had shared, was that if we repeal the Eighth Amendment, there may be these um, other constitutional rights that uh, were unenumerated and might uh, serve. I don't think they were ever going to prevent the regulation of abortion, but they might have served to restrict it fairly heavily. And so I think it was really important that the court, first of all, clarified where the constitutional rights of the unborn, so to speak, reside within the text. But also, and not enough people have spoken about this, the court also said, of course the state should take into account fetal life when making law and policy. Of course the state should take into account the fact that once born, that will be a baby with the full range of constitutional rights. But that doesn't mean that in utero they have the same rights as a pregnant person. So the Supreme Court effectively said that we can do what you do in almost all jurisdictions, and that is to have a parliament that says we have an interest in preserving fetal life, we will do it by supporting voluntary and consensual pregnancy and not by coercing pregnancy by making abortion illegal. So. The court made it clear that Parliament can balance and should balance those interests. And just a a final question. The book contains practical proposals for policymakers and advocates and even includes some model legislation, which uh, should make it a really important campaigning tool leading up to the referendum. Does the draft legislation go further than, say, the Citizens' Assembly uh, proposals or the Eighth Committee recommendations, or does it offer various options depending on, I suppose, what legislators ultimately go for, because the referendum is one thing and then there's the legislation after the fact. Isn't that correct? That's right. So we tried to model legislation around what the Joint Eurotis Committee recommended, which was a minor variation on what the Citizens' Assembly had recommended. So we proposed that there would be access without the need to show grounds before 12 weeks 
we proposed that between 12 and 22 weeks there would be a health ground. Okay. But we very importantly have a provision that says doctors are obliged to make a decision in a timely manner. And also that doctors must take into account the pregnant person's own assessment of their health. The timely decision making is really important if, as it looks likely, and as is the case in most countries, late abortion will actually practically never happen. So we want to avoid situations where people are kept holding on from whatever, 15 weeks up until 23 weeks before they get a decision. And then at over 22 weeks, we talk about the idea that abortion might be available if there was a risk to a pregnant person li person's life, a risk to health or a diagnosis of a serious fetal anomaly. And so we don't go into socioeconomic reasons, largely because we take the World Health Organization's definition of health, which is a comprehensive definition, physical, okay. mental and societal health. Okay. So if a person is too impoverished, let's say they've already four or five children and one more would just push the whole family into economic difficulties, would that be covered by the WHO definition of health, do you think? I think what the WHO would say then is that you have to take into account those circumstances when assessing the impact of continued pregnancy on the person's mental or physical health. Okay, fair enough. That it's a whole, it's, it's a broad um, analysis. So, you know, in those ways, it's the same. We do go further some ways in the Joint Eurocrisis Committee. So we talk, for example, about some principles that, you know, there should be, um, that the, the starting principle should be respect for a pregnant person's self-determination. We talk about ensuring that only individual healthcare professionals can make a claim of conscientious objection and not institutions, which okay. is really important with the structure of Irish healthcare. We also provide for things like the protection of premises, abortion care is provided, and the prohibition of the distribution of misleading abortion information. So it's a bit more comprehensive than what we've seen so far from the government.